Welcome back to the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Parkinson. We're once again at the Hyrick House and DuPont Circle with always producer Panama and um, I guess John Schumacher for the second of our two-part series um, focusing on uh, his uh, experiences um, and his path so far. Uh, welcome back, John. Thank you. Glad to be back. Yeah. So we covered a lot about uh, kind of working in India and studying with BKS Angar in the last episode. And you kind of started to talk about how you brought his trainings back to back to D.C., the D.C. area. Um, and uh, tell us a little bit how Unitywood started. It was in 1979. Right. Um, I'm going to say sort of at the outset that uh, currently there's... Abhijata, his granddaughter, Iyengar, and Prashant Iyengar, his son, and Sunita Iyengar, his daughter. Um, he and his eldest daughter, Gita, have died. Uh, so right now, as far as I'm concerned, there are only three Iyengar teachers in the world. Uh, the rest of us are all interpreters. Uh, and we call it Iyengar Yoga. Somebody asked him one time, uh, what, is, what is Iyengar Yoga? Yeah. And he sort of get, wiggled his head a little bit and said, I myself do not know. I just do yoga and people have come to call it Iyengar Yoga. Uh, so uh, we're just taking what we've learned at his and his daughter's and the other's footsteps, uh, or, or feet actually, at yeah. their feet, and um, practiced it and uh, then convey it as best we understand it to our students. So. Well, that's, 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 that's interesting. So... Um, when you came back, were you just calling it yoga? Like, when did we start calling it Iyengar Yoga? yoga. Yeah. Uh, it was called Iyengar Yoga then. Okay. Uh, because uh, people would go to study with him, and he was BKS Iyengar, and it was a unique way of approaching. Nobody else was doing quite what he was doing, mm -hmm. and it just was a way to differentiate it and speaking about it. From other types, yoga. yeah. Yeah. When, uh, um, what other types were out there back then? Oh, golly, there was... Um, uh, Besides Sivananda, obviously, was there. Yeah. Kundalini Yoga, yeah. uh, um, Integral Yoga, Swami Satchitananda. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to forget lots of them because that's not where my head is at the moment. Um, there was, you know, of course, Eclectic Yoga, uh, there wasn't not a lot of Ashtanga yoga when I started. I was unfamiliar with that. Um, what else was out there, golly? I don't know. That's where that's all. Yeah, I can that's think a of. good start. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but uh, Unity Woods um, in 1979, when uh, when I established Unity Woods, it was primarily as an umbrella, uh, a name, uh, a business entity under which to operate. So since I decided at that time to commit myself full-time to yoga, uh, that I was going to operate under a name, not just John Schumacher, but some it, to be more business-like. Mm -hmm. And so, where did the name come from? The name came uh, at that point, uh, after I finished my school bus trip, uh, I came back to Maryland and um, wanted to uh, settle down. Uh, and so... Uh, I wound up on 48 acres uh, with a little cabin on it, a little hunting cabin. Uh, the address was Thermont. It was between Frederick and Thermont, Maryland. Uh, and what I wanted to do uh, was to establish something a little like Feathered Pipe Ranch out in Montana where uh, people would come, stay for a week or, or 10 days and uh, have sort of uh, residential, uh, immersive kinds of experience with yoga. 
So I wanted to establish a center like that. And I had this acreage and I had a nice piece of property. Uh, and uh, I didn't know what to call it, but it was out in the woods. So there was the woods part. And then yoga, yoga woods, yoga means union, union woods, unity, unity. So, so it became Unity there Woods. Go, yeah. uh, that was 1979. In 1986, the house burned down. Um, and uh, I never went back. Uh, because, you know, I was going to build the center, but it turns out that the land wouldn't perk, if you know what that means. And I, so I couldn't build buildings out there. Uh, and so I never really went back. I, by then, I opened my full-time center in Bethesda for a year. So um, the people go now, I'm on the 16th floor of a, of a high-rise in Bethesda, and where's the woods? And so you know, <laughs> that's, the sto- that's the story of the woods. Wait, so you were just leading basically like little mini yoga retreats for like four or five years at, your, at this cabin? No, um, no, not really. Was, uh, I, I would do occasional weekends, okay. but I was still teaching these classes at various... Uh, gotcha. When I came back, um, I still didn't know whether I wanted to play music or do yoga. Yeah. I loved them both. Uh, and I said, I'm going to let the universe decide. I'll pursue both for a little while. And so I auditioned for people in bands, uh, and they didn't like me, and I, or I didn't like them. Uh, and my phone rang, and people said, oh, you're back. Would you p- do a class at my house? Oh, uh, the rec center called me. And so I said, well, you know, okay, universe is Universe decided. is calling, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> that's what I did. So I was still doing those kind of classes wherever I could do them. Yeah. What were you, what, uh, were you playing an instrument? Were you a lead singer? What were you doing? No, I'm a you're drummer. Being, you're a drummer. I mean, I, I played know. a little piano, and I played flute. I learned, taught myself the flute. Yeah. Uh, I'd studied music as a, as a youth in seventh and eighth. I went to pre-body, uh, pre-body, uh, Peabody Prep up in Baltimore to learn technique and uh, piano. But um, I found that kind of lifeless after a while. And it wasn't really uh, until I started playing drums and then um, until I started to understand what music was really about. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't just scales and pieces of music. It was, um, uh, it was a... It was a mystical experience, actually. Yeah. So yoga and music. Uh, there. There's a great book by uh, Pir Vilayat and Nayat Khan, a great Sufi master, called Music, and uh, or is it Hasrat? One of one of those guys. I think it was uh, the the former. Uh, and he talks about music as being the key to understanding the cosmos. Yeah. And it is. Yeah. Just just like yoga is. Yeah. There's lots of lots of parallels between music and yoga. Yeah. Yeah. For you, how? And how? Hello, yeah. Um, it's uh, it requires discipline, uh, study, attention, uh, and has the possibility of providing a transformative experience for the performer and the listener. Uh, it's a it's the opportunity for transcendence of small self, uh, into and tapping into um, the vast immediate now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the note's gone, you're into the next note. I mean, you're, if you're going to play and play well, you're in that moment. Yeah, you, if you're focusing in on the music and you're, yeah. you are going from one note to the next, it really doesn't get any more... Particularly if you're improvisational, you can't be thinking about technique. It has to be, I hear this, and so I just respond with that, and there's, it doesn't go through the brain like that. Mm-hmm. It just happens. So it's missed, you know, you can't, you can't really say what happens there. No, you, yeah. there's, and, if, and here's the thing, like, uh, why are we trying to, we do this all the time, right? Why, why are we trying to rationalize miracles? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that the fucking definition of a miracle? <laughs> yeah. Like, you it's can't in, rationalize it. Like, <laughs> It's ineffable. It's ineffable. Yeah. But, you know, we need to communicate with each other, or we want to, right. and we need to. Uh, and so, you know, words are kind of a way that we do that, and we try to cram these indescribable experiences into words. I have a T-shirt that my, um, uh, my son and grandkids gave to me. Uh, we we went through the Air and Space Museum one day, and I saw this T-shirt, and they bought it for me. And it's a, a psychedelic dayglow picture of Einstein on the cover. And I won't get this exactly right, but it, he, in it he has a quote of his that says, "There is nothing more beautiful than the mysterious." Mm. And, yeah, for sure. Know, and he certainly knew about that. Powerful yogi was Einstein. Yeah, big yeah. time. Yeah, I always like to tell people in my classes that when they're like, because at Vita, we're, we have our yoga room is all with mirrors around, all the mirrors. Um, and I constantly see people in a balancing poses looking in the mirror. And I always tell them, you know, because of a yogi named Einstein, that when you look in the mirror to try and balance, by the time the image comes back to you, you've already fallen over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have any mirrors in the room at yeah. uh, Unity. We don't have clocks on the wall either. Yeah. Um, Although I would like to have one of those Buddhist clocks where, you know, where the numbers are, uh, the, the hands point to them. Uh, it just says now, 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 all the way around the clock. But, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so you opened the first place, first Unity Woods in Bethesda, the one that wasn't right. out. Yeah. Right, that was 1985. Mm-hmm. Uh, I um, was looking for a place to have the classes end. Uh, actually, uh, I wound up in this high-rise, Triangle Towers, uh, in the Woodmont Triangle part of Bethesda. Uh, and it was a big enough space and reasonable rent, uh, good location uh, near, near a metro. And um, so uh, I took a shot, and uh, I had already been teaching for a long time, about 250 students. I did the numbers. I would have to charge for my classes, even if I lost a bunch of students. I uh, figured what I could reasonably have for a number of students. So I crunched numbers and said, you know, I've got to charge twice what everybody else is paying for yoga classes for this to work. But I want to try this. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I don't want to die wondering. So um, uh, I did it and it worked. How many other yoga studios were there at the time? Studios? Yeah. None. None. It was the first one there. Yeah. 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 Um, so the first, did it work right away? Was it like... Yeah, it worked it, right away. worked right away. I borrowed uh, $10,000 from my mother. This is 1985. Uh, and to build it out. Wasn't built out in time for the grand opening. The fluorescent lights were hanging by wires from the ceiling, resting on the floor, and there was drywall dust everywhere. Um, but, you know, lots of my students who had been studying with me at churches, I was taught at this church basement for a bunch of years, and... Uh, showed up and kept coming and told other people. And, of course, there weren't a lot of other places for people to go. Uh, so uh, by the end of the first year, I paid my mother back her $10,000 and 10% interest. And yeah. it was financially a great go uh, from then until recently. Were you teaching all the classes? Who was teaching all I the I started classes teaching there? all the classes. Yeah. Uh, and then I added another teacher, a woman named Liz Marks. Uh, and then, you know, students gradually... Uh, developed into uh, strong enough practitioners that I uh, I gave them classes to teach. Uh, and just now I have 20 teachers or something like that. It changes over time. Uh, and, you know, I've never done teacher training where you do umpty-ump weeks for umpty-ump thousand dollars and have umpty-ump hours of, or not, usually it's not umpty-ump hours, it's a few hours of training. It's always been an apprenticeship where people study with me and uh, at a certain time, I would say, you know, you could teach. Here's some here's some times to teach. 
Yeah, that's like the old school way to do it. I yeah. still I still do it that way. Is that right? Yeah. So this this to this day. I do have you know uh, do occasional weekends. We have a place out in West Virginia. Uh, where three weekends out of the year, I'll do a weekend, have one coming up in April, the end of April, uh, on sequencing, the, the art of skillful sequencing. So we'll take a topic like that and teach teachers or serious students about that aspect of the practice, but that's not a teacher training right. per se. Um, I think it takes a long time to train a teacher, and not everybody, in my opinion, is cut out to be a yoga teacher. I tell the students who come to me and say, I'd like to be on your teacher list, I have a list of people who want to be apprentices, um, and what are the requirements? I say, first, practice. If you're not practicing every day, don't talk to me about it, because mm. your teaching is going to come from your practice. Literally every day. Yeah. yeah. Well, six days a week. Yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah. stuff you know, stuff intervenes, but you have a, a daily practice, right. it's a consistent practice, and it has to be a strong practice, and you have to be growing in your practice. So there has to be some skill with the topic. Also, um, there are certain things I can't train people. You have to be intelligent. Um, I can't train people. You have to be articulate. You have to convey this to people. Right. So there's lots of ways of being articulate, but you have to be articulate. Um, you have to be dedicated. You have to be. Uh, you have to manifest the benefits of yoga. You know, you either exude perfect health or great clarity or charisma or whatever it is. Uh, people want to have to want to walk in the room and see you and go, oh, if yoga can do that for me, I'm interested. So I'm looking for that before I even consider training. I can teach skills. That's no, that's no problem in a way. But those kind of qualities, they have to be there. Yeah, there's, uh, the, there's at Vita we do auditions a lot, and I'm involved with you know, hiring and, uh, you know, new instructors. And regardless of what you know, we're hiring for, there has to be something there. Um, there has to be some sort of spark there that is, like you said, like the charisma there. Um, because I can teach you how to teach a class or how to organize a class or how to, you know, I can teach a person how to do a deadlift. What I can't teach is whether or not they're going to be engaging when they teach that to others. Right. That's totally up to them, right? Yep. Yep. And each person has to find their own way. I mean, they usually emulate their teacher for a while, but eventually they, they do and have to find their own voice for it yeah. to be authentic. Yeah. Um, did you, so you train most of the teachers who, who taught at Uni Woods over most, the years? Yeah. Most. Mm -hmm. And how long does that typically take? Well, they have to be students for a couple of years. Right. Now I've had, uh, in recent years, I've had students who uh, came in and I, you know, they'd already been doing yoga for five, six, seven years. Yeah. And they're like accomplished practitioners. And so I'll watch them for six months, nine months and go, you know, uh, I I've seen enough that these people would be good teachers. And so then they'll apprentice with me for, well, the apprenticeship usually lasts for two, two and a half years. Yeah. But if, you know, if they, if they can go faster, they go faster. And some people apprentice for two, two and a half years and still don't teach. It's very individual. Yeah. Um, how many classes were you offering when you first began? Like oh, that one location? Was it like morning, noon, and night? Or was it just no, like... It no, was, no, no. Yeah. I, uh, I think it was four nights a week and uh, Sunday, Saturday, and Sunday mornings. And probably that, I didn't teach in the mornings because I practice in the mornings. Yeah. Uh, but then other people begin to take those classes. The program began to expand. But when I crunched the numbers uh, before opening the center, it was based on what I had been teaching, which was uh, four nights a week. And I think I did teach one, maybe two mornings, uh, and then the weekends. Uh, so um, that's all I needed to make it work in the beginning, yeah. and then it ex expanded from there. So why Bethesda? Why the D.C. area? I mean, you... 
grew up here. Is that basically? well? I, I moved to this area. I was born in Baltimore. I lived yeah. all over Maryland, but uh, I uh, um, moved to the Washington area to go to University of Maryland in the late '60s, yeah. uh, and just stayed in the area. I love the area. I love the city. I think it's it's my favorite city in the world. I've been to a lot of cities, yeah. uh, and uh, I had a choice. I didn't have to be here, uh, but I chose here for a lot of reasons. Friends and family are here, uh, and um, it's a beautiful city. And I'd already been teaching, you yeah. know, uh, so you know, might as well, well, it would just take time to build it up someplace else, and yeah. there's no reason not to be here, so yeah. here I am. When did, um, all right, when did, at, so you're Cecil from the beginning with the yoga studio, at what point was uh, it like? Wait, that's, the, you know, I'd been teaching for 12 years. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 so yeah, no, no, but with Unity Woods, <laughs> right, right, yeah, that's so right. like, so like, so like, yes, the studio's successful, like, when right. are you sort of like, oh shit, like, maybe I'll open another one. Yeah. Like when did, when did does that like... Well, that was 91, I think, six years later, something yeah. like that. It won't hold me to the dates, but I think that's close, uh, was D.C. Uh, and a lot of people were coming up from D.C. for classes. Some of my teachers were from that area. So I said, well, open another studio in D.C. And then five years later in Arlington. And so the one in D.C., that was the one that was up in Woodley Park. Woodley Park. Woodley Park, yeah. Right. Where a lot of yoga teachers in D.C. these days got their start. That's why I'm not there anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're all there now and they've they all got centers they there. They ran you out of town. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you know, that's, that's the old, yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, and the, so were you, and so at some point, at one point you had all, you were all three, right? You had, you all, had three. all three. Mm -hmm. I mean, were you teaching at all of them too? Not, or only, only Bethesda. Only Bethesda. Right. So they were all, they were all, you had your own students at all the other ones. Or sorry, your own, your own teachers, teachers. who you yes, taught. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at what point did it, did, uh, did John Schumacher, the yoga teacher from DC become like, John Schumacher, the guy who's on the cover of Yoga Journal. I've never been on the cover of Yoga <laughs> Journal. I've been in Yoga Journal a bunch, yeah, but yeah. never on the cover. Uh, when did that start to happen? When did your own sort of personal, like, like people started coming to you going like, oh, you know, you're, you're an expert, like, please, you know, do this, do this conference or do this, mm -hmm. you know, workshop or whatever? Uh, probably mid-80s, yeah. uh, late 80s. Uh, Yoga Journal didn't get started till the early 80s. Uh, and it was essentially an Iyengar mouthpiece. Uh, the, they were all Iyengar people who started the Is magazine. That right? Oh yeah. yeah, it was an outgrowth of the California Association. Uh, Judith Lassiter was one yeah. of the prime movers of that. Uh, and um, so uh, I taught at the first Iyengar. It was the inter first and only international Iyengar conference in San Francisco in '84. Uh, so in those three years since I first went to Iyengar, I um, made a sufficient impression to uh, teach a little bit at that conference. Uh, and so it kind of put me on the map a little bit. And when Yoga Journal started, I did some things in Yoga Journal. And then, I, then they started doing conferences. I began to teach at the conferences. So it just sort of developed like that over time. Mm -hmm. Then I went to U Feathered Pipe Ranch, which was kind of the uh, one of the premier um, places you went to go away and do yoga for a week. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Um, I studied there for a couple of times, a couple of years, and then I went up teaching there. And I taught there with Judith Laster for a couple of years, and then I taught with Patricia Walden there for 19 years. We've taught together. Uh, so you just, you know, between the conferences and those sorts of things, it, you get a national exposure. And th there weren't that many people. It was sort of like music in those days. Uh, when somebody came out with a new album, everybody knew about it because there were only so many bands right. and there was only so much outlet. And so there were only so many yoga teachers. When you went to a conference, those teachers got to know each other. 
the first conferences really that I taught at and went to were through an organization called Unity in Yoga, which was started by Ramajodi Vernon, mm-hmm. a well-known teacher at the time who had all these contacts with Indian teachers, very serious uh, uh, practitioner. Uh, and she used to do these conferences at Murrieta Hot Springs in California. And so I got to know Vasant Ladd there and went to was, you know, Indra, Indra Devi there and Gary Kraftsau and uh, Richard Miller, who started, um, um, <laughs> uh, was involved with International Association of Yoga Therapists, Larry Payne. Uh, I got to know all those people at those early conferences. Um, was there ever a time when you were sort of like, on the circuit of like going to conferences, like, or were you always like, no, you know, I've got to teach my weekly classes here at Bethesda. Was there a time? Oh, no, I always taught my weekly classes. They were my priority because they were my students. And those, those were the people that I was teaching yoga to, uh, and, and developing and watching develop. But, um, so I would teach during the week. I stopped teaching weekends so I could do these weekends. Yeah. So it'd usually be on weekends, except for feathered pipe. I'd take off and do a week. And then in 1982, my second trip to India, uh, I went uh, to the airport, and as I got arrived at the airport, I realized I didn't have my passport. Uh, so I didn't have time to go home, get my passport, and get back. So I missed the flight. Uh, and there was a, an intensive starting in a few days. Uh, so I called, and they, all the flights were booked for weeks. It was, you know, that's just the way it was then. Uh, so they said, the only way you can go is uh, to go to New York, where they have a flight that goes to Bombay every night, uh, and you can go and stand by. So I drove to New York the next day and uh, luckily got out on the first, that first night. Mm-hmm. Going, and also on that flight was a woman named Barbara Baina, who was an Iyengar teacher in the Boston area. And I had met her in, this Philadelphia, in these Philadelphia things for a bit and going to Boston. Uh, and so um, we finagled sitting together and uh, we're talking about a lot of things. And at one point she said, you know, I took a group down to Puerto Rico last year, had about seven or eight students, and... Uh, it paid for my vacation in Puerto Rico's. I said, hey, I can get seven or eight students uh, and we can do it together and you know, not have to teach as much and back each other up. She said, yeah, I don't want to go back to Puerto Rico though. But I heard about um, uh, a teacher who took a group to Jamaica and she had said it was great. So I said, okay. And so we set that up uh, and uh, we went the next year and this is next, I'm leaving on Saturday, a week from today for our 37th annual yoga vacation in Jamaica. So for You've been doing the yoga retreat for 37 since years. Since we set that up on that uh, fateful flight. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. And we're pack, packed full 48 people each week. And the first week, 100% returnees, people come back. Um, and so, you know, I, I do give up my weekly classes for a few of those things, but not many. Usually I'm around for weekly classes. Is it the same place every year you go back to? Same city. We've been in three different locations over the 37 years. We've been in the same location now for probably 15, 18, I lose track, but right. long time. And it was in Jamaica? Negril. Negril, yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. So I do, do that for two weeks. You can come for a week or two weeks, and uh, then uh, my wife Susie and I take a week in Montego Bay at an all-inclusive. But I would and, about to say, and yes. Get, uh, and get fed and, you know, and taken I, I care bet, of. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, I do my own. Uh, I do my own retreat to St. Lucia every year. I went um, to St. Lucia for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it's a, it's a nice island, and we do the same thing. We go to a, we do an all inclusive, and it's um, it's sort of the opposite of your normal yoga retreat. Not normal yoga retreat, but the ones that I've seen where you know you kind of 
you unplug and you sit on the beach and you eat avocados and like, you know, you do yoga four hours a day. And this one is more like, no, you go down to breakfast whenever you want. And, you know, you do yoga, sunset yoga, at five o'clock. And in mm. between you go scuba diving and, you know, you, you get massages and you, right. know, you really, you really pamper yourself. So. Yeah, well, ours is billed as a yoga vacation, not a retreat or an intensive. Yeah. And so we do a class from 8 to 10, and then we do a brunch. That's part of the package. Then you have off the afternoon, then we do an evening class, 4 to 5.30 or so. And then there's kind of the ritual of watching the sunset in the grill because the western tip of the island. Yeah. And you have the evening. So people have, we do three and a half hours of yoga a day or, or a little more. Um, but there's also a time to enjoy Jamaica. And really one of the reasons that people keep coming back is because there's just wonderful people. Yeah. And so they meet wonderful people. Yeah, I was going to say that is the best part of it, right? Is it kind of like people of a similar mindset, you know, they're, they're, or not a you know, similar mindset, but people of a similar energy are going to, you know, be there. Right. And, you've, and you really get that feeling, you right. know. Plus, we're not at an all-inclusive. Um, the all-inclusives have sort of wrecked the economy of Negril. Uh, so our people get out into Negril, and right. into the little shops and the people who... And, and we've been going there for 37 years, so they know us. They're glad to see the yoga people come because we're an economic yeah. force with 50 people. Yeah. Um, so they have a different kind of experience from those people who are hiding behind the walls. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so your own sort of personal practice like you still practice every morning every are you morning. like so you, do you get you get up at like four o'clock no no like no I, I'm, okay. um, my wife uh would go to bed at one or one thirty. i would go to bed at uh she, she scoffs when i say this nine thirty or 10 which i do on these kind of trips right uh, to get up to practice um but i some two nights a week i don't get home till ten thirty. Uh, but I would go to bed earlier. So we sort of compromise and go to bed somewhere between 11 and 12 o'clock. Right. So I get up between 6 and 6.30. Um, but in Jamaica, for instance, because I have 8 o'clock class, I'll go to bed at 9 and get up at 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that schedule, but uh, my wife and I would hardly know each other, and we like each other. So we find a way to spend a little more time together. Compromise, yeah. 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 Um, so your morning daily practice. Uh, I get up, I do yeah. an hour of pranayama mm-hmm. uh, and half hour sitting. Uh, and then I take off for about a half hour, 45 minutes, go ahead and get the paper or and look at the headlines, or if it's summer, pick a magnolia to bring into the house or shovel the walk if it's winter or whatever, you know, take yeah. about 45 minutes, and then I do about an hour and a half or so of asana. So it's yeah. about a three-hour-a-day practice. Um, and when you... When you what do you so what do you do are you like the same thing every day type no, of guy no, or you're no, like no. you're like you know i feel like i'm gonna do back bends today or like how does it work oh it works with you know it's not just what i feel like doing because i'm a human being and i'm inclined to do what you know i'd like to do uh, yeah of course uh, and i do some of that um, but i also have a fair sense of what i need what i'm lacking what i'm teaching you know if i realize hey i taught this but i'm there's stuff about here that i'm not 100 percent clear about myself so it's a study um, my practice is not so much a doing as it is a study. And of course I'm doing, I'm not just sitting around looking at books and, you know, it's a practice, uh, but it is, um, it's looking at where my, uh, where my unconscious areas are, both physically and uh, mentally. The habits, yeah. Yeah, habits. Habits, uh, unconscious habits are no good. Uh, habits are fine. I have the habit of brushing my teeth. Mm-hmm. It's a good habit. I may intend yeah. to maintain that. So to say habits are bad is silly. Um, but unconscious habits, they're, they're uh, great obstacles in, in our progress. Yeah. Um, when was the last time you took someone else's class? 
Hmm. I took one of my teacher's classes um, just last Saturday. I took her level two, three class, and then I watched her level mm-hmm. two class, give her feedback. Um, but I took that class. And so uh, I have a woman, Lois Steinberg, who's a little more senior than I in the Angor um, Panoply, or Pantheon, I guess is the word. Uh, and she's a fabulous teacher, great person. I have her come most springs. Uh, so uh, I'll take those classes. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll assist a little bit in some. And, you know, um, I'm old. I'm 74 years old now. So uh, there's certain things that I don't do um, because I know they don't work for me. They don't work on my nervous system. They have too much strain. Um, I just can't do them anymore or whatever it is. Uh, so I'll, you know, I'll take the class and I'll assist some also. Um, in the fall, I have a fellow named Birju Mehta, who's one of the old, Iyengar's oldest, longest time students, just an amazing teacher. Um, I'll take his workshop. I won't assist at all. T- whatever he says to do, I'll do the best I can. So a couple of times a year, I wind up in those kinds of classes. But generally, I don't go to classes much because I've got plenty to work on mm-hmm. on my own. And uh, at this stage of the game, I've, you know, I'm, uh, my blood pressure is mm, iffy. So I adjust my practice to keep... I don't want to take meds, so I adjust right. my practice so that my... Um, blood pressure works and I, I've noticed I'm much more attuned instead of what's happening to me physically, what's happening in my uh, mental state and my nervous system. And so I used to do a lot of back bends and I love them and they're fun and they're exhilarating, but I find now that they're a little too hard on my nervous system. So I do more supported back bends than I used to do yeah. and not as many. And so now it's not, um, I haven't done my, uh, uh, 18th Ordvadhanarasana yet. It's like, uh, okay, I'm at this number and um, I think this is enough for today based on my breathing, based on my mental state, based on my nervous system. So that's what guides me at this point. Did you ever or do you ever uh, do any other kinds of athletic activity, play basketball? As a kid, I played baseball. (laughs) I I lived on the water, so I swam a lot. Uh, And uh, my father was a semi-pro ball player. So he taught me a little baseball, and uh, I played baseball through grade school, but not in high school even. Uh, after high, once I hit high school, it was nothing, nothing physical, which is why I said when I got to twenty-five, I hadn't been taking care of myself at all or paying any attention to that. Right. Okay. So this is, reminds me. So I heard an urban legend about uh, a series of tests that somebody did on you one year. Where people wanted to there like are urban say, legends no, no, about no, me? No, 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 no. Like not a series test, but like basically they wanted to test the strength of yoga teachers, and they they ran a battery of like strength tests on you, and like they were people, they were, people were like, oh wow, like this guy's pretty strong, and all he does is yoga. Is this, no, a, was here's, this a thing? Here, here's here's I, I, of here's course my, like all like all the urban legends. I wildly right, right. yeah yeah no here here's as far as I can relate to that. Uh, here's what happened. Uh, a number of people over years had come to me and said, uh, "What do you do for cardiovascular fitness? What do you do besides yoga?" I said, "Don't do anything. Yoga is, takes care of everything." They said, "It can't take care of your cardiovascular fitness." So um, I went and got an echo stress cardiogram at a at a, a lab, uh, and um, I came out. Not at the very, very top, but in the high level mm-hmm. of uh, cardiovascular fitness. So every time somebody said, you know, you can't do yoga as, as a complete form of exercise, I'd go, <laughs> hold up my sheet. So that's the basis of... That's um, what it is, yeah. 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 Um, uh, so kind of getting more to... Can, let, me, let me stay with that for just a moment. Yeah, go though. for it. Uh, because people's idea of fitness yeah. is so limited. 
one of the beauties of yoga is it's holistic. And so fitness from a yoga point of view incorporates the breath and incorporates your state of mind. It's not just, you know, 180 beats a minute for three minutes, uh, uh, time, you know, three times a week or whatever it is. They did a test with Swami Rama one time, uh, and uh, he was one of the first people they tested. I think it was at the Menninger, Menninger, Menninger Clinic. Uh, and he could make one finger blue and one finger red with uh, adjusting his blood flow. So the idea of blood pressure being a certain level at certain times of the day is kind of Neanderthal way of thinking about physical fitness when you understand those kinds of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Um it's always interesting to me uh, because I do work at a gym when we do talk about fitness that 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 is very limited in terms of like looking at just the body um, when we're not talking about the central nervous system um, because the body and the central nervous system they are so uh, interdependent on each other um, and you have to pay attention to what's going on with the central nervous system because as I'm finding saying in my classes is if you can release the tension in your mind the tension in your muscles will release too, mm-hmm. right? So, it, you know, it, you can sit there with a strap and try to stretch your hamstring as much as possible, but if you're stressed out upstairs, your hamstring ain't going to move, right? you know? Um, and I, so I find that totally fascinating. Yeah, that's why real yoga is not just physical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at what point did you notice, like, or did you notice, like, hey, this yoga thing is, like, blowing up? Like, this is, this is starting to become a thing now. Well, when I was when at, or at least in this area, yeah, yeah. well, when I had uh, twenty seven hundred a week coming into the classes, yeah, uh, it was obvious that it was really happening. I think Madonna, inter- interestingly enough, was one of the people who really got things going when she started doing yoga. Yeah. She was at you know the peak of her uh, popularity or fame, uh, and so lots of people said, "Whoa, she's doing it! Must be cool!" So I'm going to do it. And then Sting was doing it, and uh, celebrities. And athlete Kareem uh, uh, Abdul-Jabbar was mm-hmm. doing it. And so sports guys and um, uh, uh, recording artists and movie stars were all doing it. And, you know, we're a celebrity culture. So uh, that got people interested. And that's really what took it off for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, who was going to your classes at the very beginning, like of Unity Woods, like in the late 80s and early 90s when you were opening up more and more places? It was a mix of people. It was, you know... Uh, so it was no longer the old ladies and the hippies. It no. was sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, r- a real mix of people. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. we were in the D.C. area, so lots of bureaucrats, uh, government workers, uh, some higher level people, and um, uh, people from all walks of life, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the role of anatomy in your classes, how much do you use, like how, how much do you like see it as, um, like how much do you use, what do you, how do you use it in classes? Well, the people who teach have to, have, part of my uh, apprenticeship is they have to learn anatomy, basic anatomy and some physiology. Uh, we use anatomical terms to talk about the body, uh, but uh, we don't start beginners talking about their femurs and their... Um, you know, their liver and their kidneys and things. Right. Uh, um, it is anatomical. I mean, you're working with the body. And so I begin to identify prominent bones, like your breastbone, your sternum, and your shoulder blades. I mean, you know, like shoulder blades, duh, but people really don't, sometimes don't even know where they are. Mm-hmm. And not only... Uh, they don't know just if you look at a picture on a book, but they also don't know experientially, most people, from that. So uh, we do use anatomy, 
uh, it's kind of interesting. Nobody used to do that either in older days. When uh, when I was doing Shivananda Yoga, those kinds of books, there was almost no reference to anatomy in terms of the postures. Well, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, like back, you know, when this we all started this like yoga craze in the sixties and seventies, and mm-hmm. I've seen some of the books. The what is it, the Hittleman book that right. has yeah, yeah, that was the like, most famous back right? then. Twenty eight um, day. I, I got that a couple, a couple of years ago, and I'm looking at this. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do this twenty eight day thing. And I sat mm-hmm. down and I was looking at the poses. And I was like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> no, I will eventually. Yeah, I will eventually. Just out of curiosity. <laughs> Yeah, just out of curiosity. But if you look yeah. at the later Shivananda uh, books, yeah. they have anatomical terms in there. So that was just another thing that Iyengar brought to yoga and, and uh, yoga altogether, not only in the West but in the East, because they certainly didn't do that. In fact, uh, yoga's influence, uh, Iyengar's influence was so much, of course, they, uh, in time, made him one of the hundred most influential people of whatever year it was because of his um, effect on the, the huge popularization of yoga. Uh, in the West and around the world, really. Um, and yoga wasn't very popular in India back when he was doing it. It really wasn't until Westerners started to do yoga in big numbers that it started to become more popular in India. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you are um, when you're teaching your classes these days, how has your teaching style developed over the years? Well, Maybe, let's, let's put it this way. Has okay. your te- like in the past five years, has your teaching style developed, changed? Well, be- as I've become more familiar with the philosophy, uh, uh, not only intellectually familiar, but experientially familiar with the philosophy of yoga, it has begun to penetrate my teaching more in sort of the ways that I described in very cursory ways initially and uh, in a little more depth uh, and subtlety. Uh, as well, um, I've become more able to tailor what I'm teaching to the group to whom I'm teaching. Uh, so uh, while I may have taught too much intricacy and subtlety to beginners in the early years, and uh, it's a waste of time. It's like pouring water on a dry plant. It just runs off. Uh, they're just not ready. So uh, how to tailor my teacher to the group that's uh, teaching to the group that's in front of me, which is kind of interesting because I started, a, I, I love teaching beginners and I start one every session. Uh, and so this third week, uh, second week, last week, uh, bu- week before last of my new beginners class, I have this sort of beginners. I sort of follow a um, pattern uh, that's worked over the years, but uh, uh, apparently this group has all been doing yoga before because I started to do have them do poses, and it was like, wait, they can do this already. So instead of holding them back, I went and did a lot more than I would normally do. So it's looking, uh, I'm able to tailor my teaching more to who's in front of me and what was going to work best for them, and incorporating the philosophies. Another, another is that um, because in Iyengar yoga it has such subtlety and depth, uh, it takes time in poses to... You have to hold the poses to be able to work through those different levels of uh, experience and awareness. Uh, and so I think that I've been more concerned with subtlety and holdings for more beginning students than is effective and appropriate for them. So I'm teaching more poses a little quicker uh, for beginners, uh, and I think it works better. So like that, you know, as I observe over the years and as the students change over the years. Now, you know, when I used to ask a class... 20 people, who here has done yoga before, one or two? Now it's who hasn't done yoga, one or two. Right. Uh, so uh, all those things require changes in teaching. Yeah. For those who don't know, how long do you, how long are you typically in a, a pose in one of your classes? Varies. Yeah. Varies from in a beginner's class, 
15 seconds, 20 seconds for a triangle pose in a level three class. Minute, minute and a half, two minutes for a triangle pose. No headstands for beginners, no shoulder stands for beginners. Yeah. Uh, five minutes in a level two class. Eight minutes in a level two, three class. 20 minutes sometimes in a level three class. Depends with variations. Yeah, Kristen, when I first uh, met Kristen Crash, she was... Uh, um, she told me about you know when she was doing her own practice one day and she she would hold headstand for like half an hour, <laughs> and I looked at her like she was just crazy. I was like, <laughs> "There's a lot to do there." Yeah, I know exactly. I'm like, <laughs> I guess you have a lot to go over. Like, <laughs> it's one of the things that really differentiates Iyengar yoga from some of the other styles. And so I get Ashtanga yogis who come to class, and they do Shirshasan Sarvangasana headstand shoulder stand as part of this series. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for Ashtangis because they practice. That was one of the things that got me into Angara Yoga. A lot of the Shivananda folks didn't really practice that I encountered. Um, they, they spoke a lot about it, but in terms of being serious and enjoying and studying their practice, not so much. It wasn't until I started uh, with Iyengar that I found, wow, these people practice, and they're excited about it, and they're enthusiastic about it. So I was happy to be part of that community, and I find that with the Ashtanga community also. They're serious about their practice. So, <clears throat> excuse me, why am I talking about Ashtanga yogis? <laughs> uh, holding the poses. Holding the poses, the poses, right. Yes, yes uh, inversions. Uh, so, um, one of the things that I, I it's just do is because it's part of the class, but I also kind of enjoy doing, is I get lots of really highly mobile, very strong Ashtangis. And then we, when I put them in headstand for five minutes or more, yeah. uh, you know, they can't do it. Because they don't practice it. It's just a different way of approaching. Yeah, I used to do that. When I first started teaching, I would have Ashtangis come to my class and I would I would put them into uh, like half moon pose, um, standing on one leg mm-hmm. and like none of them could ever do it, you know, because that's not, it's not in the sequence, right? right? It's it's just not, they're not better at balancing on one leg, right. you know, unless they're holding their toe or they're, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, all, whatever practice we're doing, um, there, there are places we miss. Yeah. And, and so you can take somebody who's done a pose for 10, 15 years and is pretty good at it, give them a new piece of information, and all of a sudden they're unsteady in the pose again because it's a new pose. And ideally your poses are new poses every day. Um, I'd like to get your take on the, the point of an asana practice from a purely physiological standpoint in terms of are we, are we promoting flexibility are we promoting range of motion? Are we promoting strength? Are we promoting all of those things? Well, let's make a distinction between physical and physiological from yeah. a Nyingar point of view anyway. Physical is arms, legs, bones. Yeah. Physiological is organs functioning. Yeah, uh, so breath. sorry, so from an anatomy point of view. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, strength, uh, first strength. Uh, people think flexibility first, but really strength yeah. first, and um, then flexibility. They're almost simultaneous. One is why we start with standing poses, because you have to have strength and flexibility for the standing poses. Plus, they're not deep movements as a rule, so mistakes aren't so costly, and mistakes are inevitable. Uh, and then stamina. Those are the three qualities that uh, play a part in all the asanas. Yeah. Um, influences besides Iyengar, like books? Krishnamurti. Yeah. Ramdas, um, oh, uh, Donna Holloman, uh, Iyengar teacher, but she has her own way of uh, doing Iyengar yoga, and was she influenced my practice tremendously in the eighties. Um, uh, other influences, mm, mostly that. Yeah. 
Um, any other resources online or that out there in the world that you go to or that you would recommend for people who are looking to get into, you know, yoga in general or just... SchumacherYoga.com. Yeah, exactly, right? There <laughs> we got, go. I've got my own Finally. website apart, uh, apart from uh, <laughs> Unity Woods' website. Of course, you can go to UnityWoods.com yeah. also. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a 20th century kind of person and... Uh, so I don't really spend much time on social media and on websites and things like that. I am, have started doing webinars, uh, so you can always find out about those on SchumacherYoga.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, so what do you got? You have like talks or like, or you have yoga or you have classes? Like I, you can get, you, yeah. I record everything I do now. Oh, yeah. So it goes on the website. So you can just take a class anytime, go download a class. Very cool. Um, so there are some, you know... Um, there's some websites that look interesting and some people who are doing interesting stuff out there, but I, I personally don't spend any time doing that. Right. I've got to practice. I do my practice. You know, you do have to practice every yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we went from the three yoga studios to now just the one yoga studio in Bethesda. Is that no, right? Arlington. You still have Arlington? Okay. Yeah, and I yeah. have uh, Wednesday night and Saturday morning classes in the district. I rent space from the Washington Yoga Center for those classes. Very cool. And so how many classes a week are you teaching these days? Am I teaching? Four. Four. Not counting weekends, you know, and uh, on-the-road stuff. Mm -hmm. Are you still doing a lot of travel stuff? Uh, Some, uh, about once a month. I've cut back some. uh, But, uh, yeah, I still, there are places that I enjoy going, and I still uh, like to proselytize and expose people to anger yoga, uh, both those who are already doing it to maybe another level and those who aren't to... Uh, the beginnings of Iyengar Yoga and why I find it valuable and wonderful. Mm -hmm. Do you find that Iyengar Yoga is kind of taught the same everywhere? Uh, There's commonalities to it. And that's why there is an Iyengar Yoga. But each teacher is really different. Uh, And probably more variation in Iyengar Yoga than in lots of other kinds of yoga that you would think would be more varied. Yeah. Yeah, I guess my question is like, is my is if I go to any yoga class in Yoni Woods, is that going to be? Am I going to be? If I go to a one in New York City, is that going to be similar? Is it going to be different? Like it'll be different, it, but it'll be familiar. Be familiar. I mean, the the uh, poses, the, you'll be told the poses name in Sanskrit. For the beginners, I use English and then Sanskrit, but later it's Sanskrit and then English, and then it's just Sanskrit for the higher level classes. Yeah, uh, you'll find that wherever you go. So whatever language you speak, you'll know the poses. That's one of the reasons for using Sanskrit. Yeah. Uh, and but your instructions will be, some will be very familiar and some will be wow I never heard that before. It's just a highly creative. Uh, people think of it because you're told what to do that it must be rigid and authoritarian, and some people do present it that way. I think it's a mistake. It's a misunderstanding. Um, but it's that it's that framework that form, which provides a springboard from which to move into the formless. And so each teacher has their own way through their own practice and experience of guiding students in that direction why do you think we are so or if you have an opinion on it why do you think we are so concerned in the west with the asana practice and we haven't really we haven't really done a very thorough job of job of digesting all the other wonderful areas of yoga that are out there well we've all got bodies so it's a way for us to have access we all need to take care of our bodies or you know we, we need to we don't always do it but uh if the body's like being taken care of and so uh, it's a great place to start. Even if all you ever get is a little healthier, I mean, that's a tremendous value. That's, all, that's the reason I started. So it's a gateway. You know, the whole microcosm, macrocosm thing, everything you need to know is in there. So once you start to get in there a little bit, 
then that begins to open doors. And each door that cracks open, it's up to you whether you want to go in that door or not. And the good teacher is the teacher who guides the student to the door and says, you know, you might be interested in going on in there and checking it out. So you mentioned you have your own personal pranayama practice in the morning. Right. Um, what, is that, what does that look like? Well, I'm hesitant to tell you because then you'll think that's something you're supposed to be doing. Somebody right. asked Krishnamurti about doing yoga one time. He said, uh, I'm not going to talk about that. You won't uh, understand what I'm talking about or why I'm doing what I'm doing or what I'm doing. So let's not even go there. Um, that having been said, uh, my pranayama practice doesn't have anything to do with your pranayama practice. Um, but what it is for me is there's the physical part of just stabilizing my spine um, and expanding my uh, rib cage uh, and those things that resist any kind of fullness of breath, diaphragm, toning my diaphragm. There's the physiological part of oxygenating my blood so that my cells are nourished by more oxygenated blood and um, purified by uh, getting rid of the toxins that breathing gets rid of through carbon dioxide. Uh, so the, uh, it's a whole organic process. And then there is, uh, and what is becoming more and more interesting to me, and uh, which I'm exploring uh, in more depth, is the mental um, intelligence side, meaning not intelligence like you know IQ score, but intelligence in discriminating quality of awareness of what's going on. Uh, and particularly at this point for me, uh, the pratyahara parts of it about how the senses are involved in uh, the physical aspects of breathing and the mental qualities and uh, results of different breathing techniques and uh, how working with uh, the sense organs, the eyes, particularly the ears, uh, the eyes, the tongue, the skin, uh, uh, affects the quality of breath, which in turn affects the quality of uh, one's state of mind. Uh, so it's just a vast uh, and fascinating and subtle um, realm of exploration for me at the moment. Yeah. For those who don't sort of maybe have limited knowledge or relevant experience in pranayama, how are we going to, how are we going to define that or how are we going to sort of give a big, you know, a big description of what the practices are? Because I think a lot of people just think it's Breathing you know, exercises. Yeah, breathing exercises, right. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's sort of a, a general, gross, accurate dis description. It is breathing exercises. But um, I'm trying to think of an analogy where to say that about something would uh, completely mis mislead you as to what really goes on. Uh, prana is, it's two words, prana and ayama. Uh, prana is life force. So everything that moves in the universe, anything that has motion, movement to it, it, it involves prana involves that force. Um, okay. And ayama means to regulate, control, direct. So really, uh, pranayama is the um, controlling direction uh, of the essential life force. Uh, it is uh, in the uh, uh, equation E equals MC squared. Um, the E part is prana. It's that energy. Okay. Uh, and the matter is your lungs and your body and the rest and how all of that stuff is put into motion um, 
is uh, part of what pranayama is. Uh, but you start off with uh, basic awareness of the breath. The very first pranayama class when I teach a regular ongoing pranayama course is uh, the hardest lesson of the whole course, really. And that's to just for the first week, um, we'd start lying down. And we start lying down uh, because uh, it's essential for pranayama to be effective and um, not counterproductive uh, to be done in a context of softness, um, quietness. So when I came in for the interviews, um, Panama had on a shirt with a picture of uh, William Shakespeare on the cover or on the front. Uh, and I, a friend just gave me a, a one with Will Shakespeare on the front, and it says willpower underneath. And a lot of people don't know that hatha uh, means willpower. It doesn't only mean sun and moon, it means willpower. And in asana practice, it's an important aspect. First, to just get to the mat, but then to do what you need to do in your practice. Willpower has no place in pranayama other than to get to the mat. Uh, once you start using willpower and forcefulness in the practice of pranayama, you're going to go astray. So it's uh, how, to, how to develop a deep relaxation, quietness, and receptivity. Why is that? Is that because it would cause like blockages, or was it... Yeah, it's well. You're working with really subtle um, processes uh, and structures. So you wouldn't be attuned to it if you were. Well, you have to be attuned. Yeah. And that's why uh, in the Yoga Sutras, and uh, also in uh, Angara's approach, uh, you learn asana first. We don't uh, let people even take a pranayama class uh, until they've studied Iyengar yoga for a year, because if I start talking about the bottom of the collarbone and the top of the collarbone. People have no idea what I'm talking about. And we have to make those kind of distinctions as you go along. Plus, the asana, a, a, a proper asana practice, an effective asana practice, creates the mobility in the rib cage, the chest walls, the tone of the diaphragm to allow you to do pranayama in an effective way. And it also begins to develop your qualities of dharana and tiana, where you can pay attention in a deep enough way to what's really going on with the movement of the breath and what the effects of the movement of the breath really are. So you've studied, you've studied your own subjective processes and being in a way um, through the asana practice that you're prepared for the pranayama practice. So um, that whole quality of quietness and relaxation and receptivity has to be there for the pranayama practice to really work. Mm -hmm. And so that first class, uh, I, there are lots of ways of setting yourself up for, for, so we have a very basic way where the chest is open and supported um, and it's comfortable and then I ask them to observe their breath uh, for that first week. It's just hard to lie down and observe your breath for most people. Their, your minds go immediately to other things. Uh, but if it's like, you know, in your Google map, you've got A and B. If you want to go to B, you've got to know where A is. So if you want to get into pranayama, which is B, you've got to know where you're starting from. Yeah. And so even though it's probably... Um, only sort of effective for them to observe, at least as a start, and they begin to tune into their breathing uh, in a way that's different from what they've done in the past. Mm -hmm. So, where do you, so after you've noticed your breathing, you know you're, you know you got a long way to go. What's where do you where do you lead them after that? And this is this like should you actually is this a pranayama course that you have? It's a course. Yeah, it's so a it's year like, long course. So it's literally like you got to come every whatever. Every, you don't have to do no, anything. You don't have to. But, don't have to, but, but if you yes, do the yes, course, it's, yes. it's designed for you to come every week. Every and, week, yeah. and Just like the asana class is. And practice what it is that you learn that week. Yeah. And much more important to be consistent in your practice in pranayama than it is in asana. Because you lose what you've gained in pranayama fast. 
I mean, you know, you know, for yourself, you've worked with the body a lot. If you don't do movement much, a couple of weeks, it's, you, know, you can tell the difference. Oh, yeah. In pranayama, a couple of days, you can tell the difference. Is that right? You have to be really consistent with the practice. And it's one of the discouraging aspects of it for people. But even 10 minutes of just lying and uh, observing the breath and a few, not long or um, many, breaths makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, where, so in your own pranayama practice, like how, how did you learn it? Like, cause I think it's one of the things that at least for me, like I'd like to learn more about pranayama, but like, how can I learn pranayama? You know, like I, yeah. it's not like I can read it in a book and like, you know, it's, it it's, doesn't work that well. Yeah. like asana. You can do asana yeah. that way. Yeah. And you can sort of learn about a little bit about pranayama, but you really need a teacher to teach you pranayama yeah. because it's, you know, it's powerful. You're working with life force. And one of the reasons, another reason we start lying down is because it's, it's very basic. It's not at all, uh, um, dangerous. Uh, you know, the Hatha Yoga Pratipika says if you yes. play with your breath, it's like training lions and tigers and bears. Um, they, can, they can kill you. Uh, and so once you start holding your breath and using your fingers to play with the nervous system, you're working with serious powers. Uh, so we start people really simple, just observing the breath and gradually deepening, deepening the exhalations, gradually deepening the inhalations. Uh, and then putting that together. It's like learning on a piano. Sometimes you separate the left hand and the right hand. You learn one hand aspect right. of the piece then the other hand and then you put the two hands together so we do that with the simple things like inhalation and exhalation and it goes from that very simple basis all the way up to the most complicated digital thing digital meaning fingers uh pranayamas where you're alternating nostrils you're holding the breath after inhalation you're holding your breath out of exhalation you're counting beats and all the rest of it um even i've done all, all of that um but um, what I'm finding now from my own practice is that the very basic, simple stuff is the really powerful uh, and most interesting stuff. So now my practice almost always starts reclining with a soft, slow inhalation, soft, slow exhalation. There are five sutras in the, um, in the yoga sutras directly related to pranayama. There are a couple of others that mention it. Um, but... Um, out of those 196 sutras, when you start going into the eight limbs, there are three on asana. We spend all this time on asana. There's only three sutras. Mm-hmm. And five on pranayama. And my, my Sanskrit pronunciation is not very good, um, but, the sec- but the second of those pranayama sutras says, Paya Bhyantra Stamba Vritir Desha Kala Sankhya Bihi Paridrishto Dirga Sukshmaha. Dirga Sukshmaha means longer, subtler, sukshma, subtle dirga, longer. So your breath is to become softer, longer, more and more subtle. And the first sutra says, tasman satishvasa prashvasa irgatifikchedaha pranayamaha means when the breath ceases. So pranayama is actually the end of the breath. Mm-hmm. People think it's a breathing exercise. It's the absence of any breathing. That's much, much, much later on, if at all, ever. Uh, but that longer and longer and subtler, subtler quality obviously has tremendous effects on one's uh, awareness, consciousness, state of mind. Um, and so uh, I find that just studying the inhalation, how it ends, where it ends, where it moves, the pace of that movement, studying the exhalation like that, um, that uh, I mean, that's endlessly fascinating for me. So I spend a lot of time there. I'm sort of reminded of you know, I said I pl- learned to play the flute a little bit. So one time I went to hear this very famous, I think they call him flute players, and I was a flautist. Flautist, yes. Right. Uh, Jean-Pierre Rampal. Uh, he was perhaps the most famous uh, 
flautist in the world. And I went to hear him play in concert. And at one point in the concert, there was a, pe a passage where he just played a single note. And he held this note for measure after measure after measure. And the tone was so pure, so rich in quality, so steady, so beautiful that it brought tears to my eyes. And that's kind of what a simple inhalation or a simple exhalation can be. Yeah. That kind of steadiness, purity, clarity, subtlety. So... Yeah, and there's, I mean, listening to you describe it um, reminds me of how really you, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's just a really great way to be present and clear your mind. Yep. Like to literally empty your mind of everything that's like wants your attention. Yeah. You know, well, you know, in a, in a way that in a way that asana is hard to do because you have to pay it. You know, when you're doing asana, you're so worried. Oh, where's my knee? Where's mm -hmm. my thigh? What am I? Where's my hamstring doing? And all this other stuff in a way that you don't have to worry about when you're doing pranayama. Right? Well, asana becomes that at the end also, uh, and pranayama is about thinking about all those things in the beginning. Iyengar, when I first started to study with him, said to the class, "You'll be beginners at pranayama for ten years," and I thought, "Well, you know, I've spent a little time in India now." I I've noticed a tendency yeah, yeah. toward hyperbole at time. <laughs> so this is to make a point. And it really is about 10 years before you're truly comfortable and quiet enough to begin to really penetrate the subtlety of it, which is not to discourage anybody. It's just wonderful from the very beginning. But it's just, it's just the beginning. Right. Um, meditation. Your own, like, how would you describe the type of meditation that you do or that you teach? Well, I would, I don't, um, okay, I would start by saying you can't do meditation, okay? And, and Angor often said this also. Yeah. Uh, you can do dharna, you can do concentration. Uh, and when I said to you what my practice was like, I said I do pranayama and then I sit. Mm. So I didn't say I meditate. Uh, I sit and um, through all the other practices, uh, my sitting is the opportunity to see what my other practices uh, will allow me to experience in the way of true quietness and presence. And so most of my sitting is that. I'm sitting there and, you know, like everybody, my mind goes here and there. Oh, yeah, i got to do this later today. And oh, I forgot and uh, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. But every now and then it slows down. And every now and then um, it becomes... I don't say I become because at those moments I'm not there. Uh, it becomes really quiet. Um, and not quiet in an empty sense. There is some of that, but quiet in a full sense. Everything is there. Everything is perfect. Everything is just quiet in that moment and present in that moment. So it's, you know, Ram Das, who just passed away this year, um, uh, his book was transformative for lots of us back then uh, and he and his teaching continued to be uh, because he had it all boiled down right from the get-go it's be here now is be here now I mean that's yeah. really it that's the name of the game uh, and his second book as I recollect it was the only dance there is and you know we've got lots of problems in the world lots of things we have to attend to and need to pay attention to and work at but in the end the only dance there is is changing people's consciousness if you can set up any system you want, and if people don't have their act together, they're going to screw it up. And you can set up any system you want, and if people are conscious, tuned in, benevolent, almost any system will work. It's so changing the world, for me, is really about changing, people, changing people's consciousness, what they're tuned into and where they're coming from. 
And so, yeah. you know, lots of ways to do that, and yoga is the way I've chosen. Yeah. Well, I mean, people got to do it for themselves, right? Yes. You can't make other people do it. No, but you can guide them there. You can and guide them there. Of, you know, hey, look over here. Sure. You're missing this part. Sure. But they're the ones that, you know, they're the ones that got to step on the bus. Absolutely. You know, we can drive it, but they got to get on. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, that's great. Um, Anything else uh, in terms of uh, pranayama or meditation? What about the other stages, the other eight limbs, like the, you know, the final two stages and the final stage, samadhi. Samadhi. Yeah. Uh, that's sort like of. How like, do you? How do you? How would you? You can't just, do that either. Yeah. Right. You can do all the. It's, you know, it's sort of like a farmer, and there's one of the sutras that speaks about farmers. Um, you you plow your field, you fertilize your field, you plant your seeds. Uh, you cultivate the field, and then it rains or it doesn't. The sun comes out or it doesn't. The seeds germinate or they don't. You, all you can do is get things ready, and then it's you know you step back. Right. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, as good a way to say it as, as any other. Um, the first couple of um, yamaniyama. Yeah. They are, of course, the foundation of the practice. That's why they're first. But that's not where most people start. You know, most people start with asana, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and um, the it's one of the things about the Yoga Sutras for me uh, is that they're not um, thou shalts and thou shalt nots. None of that is in there. It's like if you are nonviolent, here's what's going to happen. If you tell the truth, here's what's going to happen. Your choice. You can do it or not do it. Um, but you find as you get deeper into just an asana practice that those uh, ten items, mm -hmm. yamas and niyamas, uh, are the for it to really work, asana to really work, all those come into it, uh, and they're they're foundational. And one of the reasons that yogis run into problems uh, in a variety of different ways, and we're all familiar with those, particularly with media the way it is these days, is they're not grounded in yama and niyama. Yeah. And not enough time is spent on that. And I don't want to get beginners in my class and start preaching to them about thou shalt and thou shalt nots, even though that's not what it is, but it sounds like that to them. Um, let them have some experience. Let them see the value of their practice, and then they'll understand why a particular yama or niyama may be relevant to them because it's part of their practice. Mm -hmm. You have a favorite one? Yama, niyama? Yeah. Ahimsa. Ahimsa, meaning most people translate it as nonviolence. Non yeah. And it's the first one, and so it's... It is, I often say to my students or anybody who listen, uh, that if you do the first two yamas, then you've, that's it, you're done, really. If you can really do those, that's what Gandhi essentially did. Ahimsa and satya, satyagraha. Mm. Truthfulness, is that right? Yeah. 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 Truthfulness. So if you, uh, and uh, it's not just a question of not harming. Iyengar pointed this out so well. Uh, it's not a, a negative, don't harm things. It's a positive, love, love everyone and everything. Um, so if you have that quality of love uh, and that quality of being truthful, if everybody would do that, you know, we'd have, we're mortal beings and we you know, have all these issues, but in terms of our society and the world at large, um, the problems would be small. This is very true, or as I like to say, um, you know, world peace is pretty simple. The relationship with your loved ones is complicated. Right. Well, Jack right. Cornfield used to tell great stories about that, coming that right? home from 20 years of sitting in a hut in uh, Burma <laughs> and thinking, yeah, he's act together, and coming home to the family, and it was a day, you know, before all the buttons were pushed, and he realized, hey, you know, that, I mean, it's like me going to Pune that time. I thought, you know, I've been doing this for 10, 12 years, or 11 years. I've got my stuff pretty together. Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> you're, yeah. a, you're a basket case in three weeks, buddy. Go, yeah. go back and think about it some more. Yeah. Um, 
yoga is a beautiful process, no? It is a process. That's right. And, you know, I think what a lot of, um, well, you know, you've lived in this town your entire life and you see the type A's that come out of this town. And, you know, it's one of the things that, um, you know, I think people struggle with a lot here is that uh, people are so used to being accomplished and accomplishing things. Um, and one of the things I like to tell my yoga students is that yoga isn't, yoga doesn't work in that frame, that, that framework a lot. Mm-hmm. Like in other words, you can feel good about yourself, but yoga isn't something like that you put on your resume. You know, like you don't, you don't, if you look at red, if you look at yoga, like, okay, now I've done crow pose and I've done headstand, <laughs> you know, and like, and then, but so after about six months, you're, you're going to go find something else. You, you'll miss sort of the whole point. Well, um, I'm not sure I really agree with that. Really? Yeah. Um, uh, particularly with Iyengar yoga, we're pretty disciplined and we're pretty stick to it. And I tell my students in the very beginning, I don't care if you can touch your toes or not, or whether you can bend over and put your head on your feet or not. Uh, I'm more interested in whether you're just here. So if I say, are your feet parallel? You know, parallels like pregnant, either they are or they aren't. And so look at your feet, be here. And if, if I tell you, uh, hey, you're, that's not parallel. I'm not finding fault with you. I mean, you're a divine being, right? You're perfect. Right. But your poses, maybe not so much. So um, <laughs> I'm here. The reason I'm doing that is not about you. It's about, you know, your attention and the quality of your attention. Right. Um, so. And that's why, that, that, I guess that's my sort of my point is that the, when you come to yoga, it's about being present. Right. It's not about whether or not you can or can't do a pose, right? right. It's like but it, we but, put it in the context of learning about the pose and working at it and paying attention and improvement. And so it starts off sounding kind of linear yeah. and kind of goal-oriented. Yeah. And I'll use that. I often say that we Iyengar yogis because we're so nitpicky and, and we're nitpicky because everything matters. Every single thing you do, it's just karma, matters. So whether you turn your knee this way or that way in a pose, makes a difference. And particularly if you're going to do this for a while. Um, um, So uh, since everything matters, we get really precise and really detailed. uh, And it seems kind of little dancing angels on the head of a pin kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And I say we, Iyengar yogis, have sort of taken our uh, anal retentive, obsessive, compulsive natures and those neuroses and turn them into assets uh, because we use that. You and said so it, these, yeah. yeah. And so those type A people can use that yeah. uh, to how, to how to refine that and, and uh, take the edges off of it and use it to go inside and deeper. Yeah, yeah. I, it's one of the things that... Um, so as I, as I encounter it, I hear a lot of people you know, tell me because they, they see that I'm a yoga teacher. I say, well, I'm not very good at yoga. <laughs> Good. All th- that's why you need to come. Yeah. Like, I, so what, I'm always responding like, well, what, what do you, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, we get this. We, we get <laughs> you know, like, this. What, what are you talking about? Exactly. Like, I don't, I don't know what that means. You're not any good at yoga. Yeah. I'm not any good at yoga either. Like, <laughs> exactly. It's like cleaning the house before yeah. the house cleaner gets there. Uh, I mean, uh, people call us up and say, you know, I thought about it, but I can't do it because I'm too stiff to do yoga. Um, uh, and some people call up and say, you know, I'd like to, do you have a teacher training course? I'd like to be a te- yoga teacher. Well, what have you been doing? What's your practice? Well, I've never done yoga class, but it seems like a really great way to make a living. It's like you get all kinds of re- weird ideas about yoga out mm-hmm. there. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always it's always interesting. Yeah. Well, it's so lovely to have you on the show, John. Oh, is it over already? I know, right? <laughs> Could talk about yoga <laughs> forever, of, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, Unity Woods has a website. You have your own website. I have my own website. Um, and uh, you on Instagram and Facebook and all those other my, things. My, my Schumacher, I think both websites are on uh, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, print, uh, what's the pr- pr- pictures? Oh, anyway. Pinterest? P- uh, yes, that yeah. one. Uh, I, I have people who, who do that for me. I don't do any of that. Uh, and I, I, heard, I don't go there really, <laughs> except mm-hmm. to except to uh, edit copy. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm accessible on on all those avenues. Yeah. Um, well, cool, man. It's been so great to have you in here. Pleasure, it's pleasure. Chris. Really, I'm really thank you for coming on the show. When I started the podcast, you were one of the first people that I really wanted to come on. It was you really are with like the you know the original gangster of uh, <laughs> DC yoga, man. So. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, John. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I've enjoyed it. Um, you've been listening to the DC Yoga Podcast, and uh, we'll talk to you all next time. Take care.